Well, this month marks 50 years since Neil Armstrong became the first human being to walk on the moon. It was an achievement that a half century later still seems almost unbelievable. And yet it's important to remember that the Apollo 11 astronauts were not the first human beings to fly to the moon. That honor belonged to the crew of Apollo 8 seven months earlier. In December of 1968, Bill Anders, Jim Lovell, and Frank Borman became the first human beings to orbit the moon. On Christmas Eve of that year, as the Apollo 8 crew watched the sunrise over the lunar horizon, they took out a Bible. And in a radio transmission that was broadcast to an estimated audience of a billion people, they read from the book of Genesis, the first chapter, verses 1 through 10. We're going to take those words as our scripture reading for the day. Let me invite you to turn there with me to the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible as we read them together. This is what folk on that Christmas Eve heard crackling back to them from 240,000 miles away in deep space. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As they finished that reading, the crew of Apollo 8 closed their broadcast by saying, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Now I can only imagine what that experience was like for them reading those words as they peered at what appeared to be a tiny planet almost a quarter million miles away through the window of their spacecraft. But I don't have to travel to the moon to know the truth of the words that they just read. Creation is good. I see it in the beauty of a sunset. I taste it in the saltiness of the ocean. I hear it in the rumble of a summer afternoon 
thunderstorm. I feel it in the cold of a January snowfall. We have all had reason to experience the truth of those words. Creation is good. Which is why it is so important we understand what the book of Genesis says a few verses later. After God creates human beings in His image, He tells them in Genesis 1 verse 28, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Subdue the earth and rule over its creatures. That was God's first instruction to those whom He created in His image. That was the first set of instructions we were given. Subdue the earth and rule over it. But what does that mean exactly? The English word subdue comes from the Hebrew word kabosh. Elsewhere in the Bible, it means to subjugate or dominate a hostile force. In particular, it's used when troops go into battle and they are told to subdue the enemy, to put the kibosh on them. You've heard that expression before. To subdue the enemy before the enemy defeats them. And so there is at least a small sense in which subduing the earth requires bringing control over something that could potentially be hostile to us. Anybody who's ever had something destroyed in a violent storm knows that the forces of nature will not always be kind to us. As human beings created in God's image, we have to gain the upper hand over creation. We have to subdue it. It's our mandate from God. But that's not the whole story. God also says to rule over the earth. And while that has a similar meaning, there is some nuance involved. The Hebrew word for rule is the word radha, and it is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe the duties of a king. A king is instructed to rule over his people. Now, what does that mean? Well, as a child, we assume that to rule means to be in charge. You get to make the rules. You get to do what you want and have your way. But the Bible gives us a different understanding. The Bible is very clear that a king, a godly king, king at least, is not to rule in a way that is destructive or harsh or self-serving. Our king rather is to rule in a way that blesses, that protects, that enhances, particularly in regard to those who are vulnerable and helpless. When a godly king rules, life flourishes. At least that's the intent. And that also tells us how we are to relate to creation. We are to govern over it in a way that protects and blesses. Under our rule, the creation should flourish. So built into the biblical witness then is this call to hold two things in balance. On the one hand, we are to exercise control over creation. We are supposed to manage the natural world in a way that promotes life instead of death which could easily happen. At the same time, we are called to do it in a way that protects the natural world and promotes its good. The created order should be better because of the way we rule over it instead of worse. 
Now, figuring out a way to hold those two calls in balance with one another is not always easy, and it can lead to controversy and conflict. Even today, all around us, debates rage about global warming, about fracking, about mining, about pipelines. Should we? Shouldn't we? And each one of those questions opens up onto larger issues and bigger political and ideological debates. What is the role of government? Who controls the scientific process? How much should we just let the free market determine such things? I'm guessing that just about any one of you here today could stand up and give a lecture on your opinion on those questions. I could too, but that's not why we're here. You didn't come this morning to hear my opinion on political issues. Instead, in the brief moments that we have, I want to make three simple but critical points that determine and shape how we as Christians relate to the created order. When we think about how to care for the world God has given us, these are three things at least that should always be foremost in our mind. First, creation is the handiwork of God and we are simply its stewards. In other words, we have been given charge to take care of something that at the end of the day doesn't belong to us. Psalm 24 verse 1 says it clearly, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We are managing God's resources on God's behalf and we dare not do so in a way that is careless or lazy or selfish. Jesus tells several different parables about a servant who's given charge over something by a master <clears throat> while the master goes away on a journey. And while the details of the various parables that he tells are, are somewhat different from each other, they all end the same way, essentially. At some point, the master comes home, and there is an accounting that is called for for the servant who's been given charge while the master was away. What did he do with what he had been given? In one such instance in the... 12th chapter of Luke's gospel, verse 45, the, the servant in charge begins to think that because the master is taking so long in returning that he is now free to do whatever he wants with the estate. And so he begins to beat the other servants and to indulge himself in food and drink to the point of intoxication. When the master does return, he is appalled at what he finds, and he has that worthless servant thrown out. Now, we tend to spiritualize that parable and say it only has to do with our responsibilities to proclaim the gospel, and it certainly does. But it also rightly applies to all the duties and all of the resources that God has placed at our disposal, including those of the natural world. Creation is God's handiwork, we are its stewards, and He will hold us accountable for what we have done with what He has entrusted to us. We dare not be selfish or lazy. Second, Jesus is Lord, and our salvation lies only in Him. Now, I know that might sound like a strange thing to say in a conversation about creation care, but that proclamation is the bedrock of our Christian faith, and it is the source of all of our thinking about 
ethical and moral issues. Anytime we are faced with a question about what we should do and how we should live, we should always go back first to that starting point. Jesus is Lord and our salvation lies only in Him. And so while we receive and celebrate the goodness of creation, we do not worship creation. God is our Father. The earth is not our mother. Now yes, we are created from out of the dust of the earth, but it is only because God breathed into us that we became living beings. Life is the willful purpose of God. The created world is the medium he chose to give that life through. And so at the end of the day, the only thing that will save us is the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Our salvation as human beings does not lie in finding new oil deposits or in creating new sources of renewable energy. While both of those things can help us to fulfill our calling to subdue the earth and rule over it, The natural world will never provide the answer to our most vexing problem as human beings because our most vexing problem is that we are sinful creatures and rebellious at heart. The only solution to that is the atoning work of Jesus Christ. From the very beginning of the biblical story, humanity's single greatest temptation has always been idolatry. At heart, we are idolaters. We have this instinct to worship something or someone other than the living God. It's where Adam and Eve went wrong. It's where the ancient Hebrews, as they made their exodus out of slavery in Egypt, went wrong. And according to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament book of Romans, it's where all of humanity has gone wrong. We worship the wrong thing. And so in our striving for faithful management of the natural world, we should always make sure that we are worshiping the Creator and not the creation. Jesus alone is Lord and our salvation lies only in Him. But finally, and this is where the issue of creation care fits into this discussion we're having over this series of weeks about simplicity. When it comes to creation care, we have to guard against our instincts for selfishness, for greed, and for excess. To put it differently, the right management of creation will most likely mean that we need to learn how to live with less. Like we said last week, our culture has taught us to believe that we are entitled to have as much as we want of whatever we want whenever we want it. We live in a culture of excess and comfort and convenience and the result is that as modern Americans we consume a highly disproportionate amount of the world's natural resources. Back in 2001 in their book entitled Affluenza, John DeGraff and his co-authors 
did some research and reported that four million pounds of raw materials are mined or drilled every year just to provide for one American family's consumption. Hear that again. Four million pounds of raw materials are mined every year just to keep the Catonhead household flowing. They also reported that Americans spend more on trash bags every year than 90 of the world's poorest countries spend on everything combined. Now, how do they come up with those numbers? I don't know. Let's say they're off. Let's say they're wrong by 10% or 20% even. We're still stuck with this staggeringly disproportionate amount of consumption that we are responsible for every year. And so at some point, we have to ask ourselves, how much do we really need? How much energy is reasonable for us to consume? How much comfort does it really take to promote a life well lived? How convenient does everything have to be for us all the time, everywhere? These are the kinds of questions that I fear are often missing in our current debates over environmental issues. Let's take the current debate over global warming as an example. One side of the debate says that the key to human flourishing is to keep finding new deposits of fossil fuels and to keep developing cheaper and more efficient ways to extract them. The other side of the debate says no, the key to human flourishing is to abandon fossil fuels and to rely solely on renewable energy. Now, while the reasonable answer would likely be that we need both, but we don't want to be reasonable about anything, the driving issue behind both sides of the debate is how can we find the energy to keep feeding our lifestyles? But at some point, it would seem we ought to stop and ask as Christians, could it possibly be that our lifestyle is what needs to change? We want to think that if we can develop the right technology, then we can just keep consuming and consuming and consuming, and there won't be any cost, and there won't be any consequence. But it is not so. Now, like I said last week, I don't believe that the Bible calls us to a life of absolute poverty. There's nothing wrong, and indeed there is something very right about the proper use and the proper enjoyment of the abundant resources that God has placed at our disposal. I will make a moment of confession to you here today. I drive a pickup truck with a pretty large engine in it, and last weekend, I used that large engine to haul a boat with an equally large engine to the water so that my family could play together on the lake. We left quite a heck of a carbon footprint last weekend. Some people would say I probably burned more than was reasonable. Maybe so, but I will tell you that the memories my family and I built in those moments together are more precious to me than just about anything I own. One night this week, we took the boat out. Right as the sun was going down, we turned the engine off and we floated in the middle of the lake as the sun went down and we counted as the stars came out. Even the family dog got quiet for a moment. The tranquility of that moment was something that I will never forget. So I am not here today to tell you that we cannot enjoy the things that God has given to us. 
But in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, we are told that the fruit of, one of the fruit of the Spirit, at least, is self-control. In other words, when the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell in us, one of the things He gives us the ability to do is to control our appetites rather than allowing our appetites to control us. Now that can refer most directly and easily to things like our appetites for food and drink. Let's face it, most of us overeat. And a lot of what we eat comes conveniently packaged in things that are discarded into a landfill where it will take hundreds of years to break down and in the meantime it will make its way into the rivers and streams where it not only challenges and threatens wildlife but makes water dirty for the neighbors that we share this planet with. But those words of Galatians can also refer to other appetites, our appetite for entertainment, for technology, for comfort, for convenience, for control. When we fail to manage those appetites, we take more than is needed and we create waste that goes with it. And this morning, I don't have some simple program for you to follow. I am not here today to tell you what you should cut out or what you should reduce down or what you should do away with. Because as Christians, we are individually free to make our own decisions, but we are also individually accountable before God with what He has given us. And I can tell you that we each have a responsibility that goes beyond our own personal comfort and convenience. We are responsible, number one, for the creation that God has entrusted to our care. And then secondly, and even more importantly, we are responsible to our neighbors who must share that creation with us. God has called us to subdue the earth to manage its resources in a way that promotes human flourishing. But he's also called us to rule the earth in a way that promotes the good of the natural world. It won't always be easy. But with God's help, God's guidance, God's wisdom, we can do it. He wouldn't have asked us otherwise. May God give us the grace to govern wisely. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we are humbled by the abundance that you pour out upon us. The grace, the mercy, the eternal life that comes to us through Jesus, which we do not earn and could never deserve. And on every corner and in every direction, we see constant reminders of your abundance. Help us to manage that abundance in a way that pleases you and blesses our neighbor. Give us the grace to rise above our own selfish desires. Give us the mercy and the wisdom to see the world through your eyes and to choose wisely. We make this prayer in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
hymn we're going to sing in a moment is one of my favorite. This is my Father's world. He created it. He gave it to us. He called us to use it wisely. But most of all, He's given us the world to point us to Him. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. We worship Him above all else. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and acknowledged Him as Lord, that's the first and most important decision that you will ever make. Then and only then can we begin to live a life that pleases Him. If that's where you are this morning in your journey, I would invite you forward as we sing. If you're looking for a church home, a place to plug in with other believers who are seeking to share and use their resources together, we would open the doors to you as well. Would you come forward while we sing? If there's anything else you want to share, I'll be here. But the call is to all of us. Let's stand and worship Him together.